Today's scripture comes from 1 Corinthians 10, 1 to 13. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed to the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. My name is Matt. I am the director of youth ministry here at Christ City Church. It's my joy to be with you this morning. Let's pray and then we'll get into it. Father, thank you so much for this word today. Lord, I pray that we'd have ears to hear and eyes to see what your word has to say to us, especially as this is a warning text. Especially, Lord, as this text warns us about our sin and the consequences of our sin, would you give us ears to hear this morning and also ears to hear the good news of the gospel that comes out of this. Lord, help us to trust in you, to believe in you, and I pray that your spirit would work in our midst. In Jesus' name I pray, amen, amen. So when I was growing up, uh, there was this TV show on TV that was extremely popular and it was called Intervention. Now, uh, personally, I was not a fan of this TV show. I didn't really watch it all that much. But when I was in my teenage years, this show was super, super popular. Like everyone had heard about it. It had this massive following. You know, other TV sitcoms, they started doing like spin-offs of the show. There's even an episode of The Office where Michael, he tries to lead one of his employees through an intervention. You know, obviously it doesn't work. Uh, This show, it even gave us one of the best memes in existence. Uh, If you don't know what I'm talking about, you can just Google best cry ever uh, when you get home and you can thank me later. It's, It's hilarious. Anyways, all that is to say that this was a very, very popular show. Now, the premise of this show, it's actually quite beautiful. You know, basically the idea was someone who was dealing with some sort of addiction, they would be confronted by all of their family and all of their friends in this kind of last ditch effort attempt to show them the error of their ways. You know, these people, they would intervene uh, in the mess this person had gotten themselves into and they would try to warn them about their behavior before it was too late. Now, the reason I bring this up is because I think this is similar to what Paul is actually doing in our passage here. You know, Paul's having a a little uh, intervention with the Corinthian church. He is attempting to warn them about their behavior before it's too late. In our text this morning, Paul's basically uh, warning and admonishing this church to see for themselves where their behavior will ultimately lead them. 
He wants them to learn from their past, to no longer presume upon God's grace in their sin, and he wants to show them that if they don't stop demonstrating unbelief in their hearts, then ultimately they will fall. So our main idea today, it's really simple. It's this, take heed lest you fall. Take heed lest you fall. And we're gonna look at three things. Uh, first, we're gonna see that there is a continuation between the church and the people of Israel. Secondly, we'll see that some of the Israelites were destroyed because of their unbelief. And lastly, we'll hear an encouragement to the Corinthians where they're reminded that they can overcome temptation because God is faithful. So three points, a continuation, an example, and an encouragement. A continuation, an example, and encouragement. Let's jump in and look at our first point together, a continuation. Read verses one through five with me in our text. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. For those of you here that know me, um, you might know that my family history is quite convoluted. Um, I'm not gonna get into all the details, but basically my dad, he never knew his real dad, and my mom never got to know her biological father either. So there's kind of this big black hole in my family lineage. There's this, this missing information. Well, recently my dad, he decided that he would take one of those um, 23andMe tests to kind of find out more about his heritage. So he took the test, right, uh, sent it in, he gets the results back, and it turns out he's 100% Irish. So not too exotic. Sorry to all you Irish folks out there, but to spend, you know, $130 on a DNA test just to find out that you are Irish, bit of a waste of money. <laughs> now, why would my dad do this? You know, why would he spend the time and the money on something like this? Well, it's because in some way, where we come from actually matters. And here in our text, Paul is reminding this Corinthian church where they come from. Look at verse five again. Notice that phrase Paul uses there, our fathers. Now, this is a bit strange, this phrase. Why would Paul identify the people who came out of Egypt, the Israelites, as our fathers to this Corinthian congregation? You know, as we know from previous sermons, this church it was largely a non-Jewish church. And even though there may have been some Jews in the midst uh, who had converted to Christianity, it was likely, just by and large, a Gentile congregation, which meant that they had no biological, you know, no real connection to these people that came out of Egypt. So what is Paul doing then, calling them our fathers here? What, what's his game? What's he doing? Well, we need to remember that for the New Testament authors, the church, it was considered the continuation, the continuation of the people of God. The church was the fulfillment of the promises that had been made about God's people in the Old Testament. And these promises, they found their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. So for Paul, the church has become the new people of God. It is the continuation of the people of Israel. 
Paul, he unpacks this idea more fully for us in Romans chapter four. There he argues that Abraham, who's the father of the nation of Israel, was justified, that's he was saved by God before he received the sign of circumcision. And this is a big deal because circumcision was the sign that sealed a Jewish male into the people of Israel. It was the sign of their membership. But if the father of Israel was counted as blessed before he received that sign, then clearly circumcision is not what makes you a member of the people of Israel. So what is then? Belief. Listen to this. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. God planned it so that Abraham might be the forefather of all those who believe. Romans 4 verse 11, the purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. You know, for Paul, what counts towards being a member of the people of Israel, it's belief. Belief in the God of scripture, faith in him. This is what enters you into the people of Israel. Meaning that you and me, this Corinthian church, anyone, anyone who puts their faith in Jesus actually stands now in the spiritual lineage of Israel. And by saying our fathers, Paul is saying that there is now continuity between the old and the new. Paul is saying that the people of Israel are, are our spiritual forefathers. Not only that, but Paul, he adds to this by saying that Jesus Christ himself was present with the Israelites as well. Look at verse four. And all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Now, we don't know uh, the exact reason why Paul identifies the rock as Christ here. Uh, this is one of those things uh, where commentators on the Bible, they all kind of have different ways of understanding it and trying to make sense of what Paul's doing. But one thing is certainly clear from this, and it's that Jesus Christ, God the Son, was present with the Israelites. Jesus, he was with them in the desert wanderings, with them. As they crossed through the Red Sea, he was with them. He was guiding them. He was sustaining them just as he guides and sustains his people, the church, today. And what this teaches us is that there is actually a deep continuity between the Old and the New Testaments. You know, the same group of people are actually being saved in both the same God is working in both. The method of salvation even is the same in both. The only difference, the only difference between us and our spiritual forefathers is that we have a fuller picture of who God is in Jesus Christ. Other than that, it's the same. And this is why reading our Old Testaments, it's such an important practice. It's important because it is the history of our people. It's church history that's been preserved by God for our edification and our sanctification. You know, a lot of um, 
well-meaning Christians today, uh, they want to argue that there is a very clear-cut distinction between the God of the New Testament and the God of the Old Testament. You know, in their minds, the God of the Old, he's this kind of harsh, judge-like figure, and he acts in these really strange and these merciless ways, whereas the God of the New, he's this nice God, this loving God, this fatherly God. You know, the God of the New is Jesus Christ, and everyone, everyone loves Jesus, right? Even Gandhi loves Jesus. But the problem with this view is that it is just simply not at all what the biblical authors themselves thought. Paul is utterly convinced, like completely convinced, that the church is the continuation of the people of Israel. The early Christians, they were utterly convinced that the Old Testament was primarily about God's plan of salvation, God's plan of redemption in Jesus Christ. And that the God who acted in the old was actually most clearly, most fully revealed in Jesus. The old and the new, they are continuous with one another. We cannot separate them or ignore one half as if it's this antiquated old thing and it's not for us today. We just can't do that. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We need to learn from both because both are God-breathed and the same God of grace, he's working his plan out in both of them. The same God who worked to save the Israelites out of Egypt is the same God working in the midst of the Corinthians and the same God working in us today. The Israelites received the covenant blessings just like the Corinthians did and just like we have. But still, look what happened to them. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. God overthrew most of the Israelites why? You know, why would God do this? Why would he do this? Well, let's turn to our second point, an example. Let's find out. Look with me at verses 6 through 11 in our text. Now, these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. So why were the Israelites overthrown in the wilderness? Well, it was because of their sin. You know, in particular, uh, Paul points out four specific sins that they were committing. Idolatry, sexual immorality, testing Christ, and grumbling. Now, Paul's choice to highlight these four sins, it's no accident. You know, if we look at our text carefully, you'll notice that each of these sins has been something that we find as a parallel 
in the Corinthian church. So for instance, the Corinthians, they were idolatrous in the wilderness when they made this, uh, or sorry, the Israelites were idolatrous when they made a golden calf to worship it and they danced around it and they celebrated around it, just like how the Corinthians were flirting with idol worship by participating in these temple services and eating food that had been offered to idols. The Israelites were sexually immoral when scripture says they began to whore with the daughters of Moab. And the Corinthians were clearly, clearly putting up with sexual immorality in their midst because as we saw just a few chapters ago, there was a man who was sleeping with his stepmother. The Israelites, they put Christ to the test in the wilderness when they started to wish that they had never ever been saved out of Egypt in the first place. And they started to speak against God's will for them. And the Corinthians are doing the exact same thing. When they continually walk in sin and they say to themselves, God's not gonna judge me. The Israelites, they grumbled against Moses and Aaron, which sparked a rebellion. And the Corinthians are doing the same thing by pitting up Paul and the other leaders and teachers against one another. Do you see what Paul's doing here? He's pointing this church to their spiritual forefathers and he's saying to them, look to them as an example. You are behaving in the exact same way that they did and they were overthrown in the wilderness. They were destroyed. And this is exactly why Paul says in verse 12, therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Christ City, this is a hard word to hear this morning. Paul is saying to this church, look to your spiritual forefathers. Look how they failed. You are doing the exact same thing. He's warning with them. He, he's, he's pleading with them to run from these sins, to flee from these sins. He's having a little intervention with them. You know, these Corinthians, they took pride in thinking that they stood free from condemnation before God. They took pride in thinking that they were actually in God's good books, but as Paul points out here, they are acting just like their spiritual forefathers in the wilderness who were destroyed for their sin. So take heed, take heed. Now we need to be really cautious here because it can be really easy to hear all of this and then think to ourselves, okay, so these Israelites, right, they were saved by God's grace. Uh, they were chosen by him to be his people. Then they sinned and they lost God's favor. You know, they lost their salvation. So what I need to do is I need to be careful or I'm gonna lose my salvation. I need to work really hard, you know, kind of muster up the strength in myself, not sin, and then I'll be fine. But I think if we read this passage this way, we actually kind of miss Paul's whole point. And to understand what I mean by that, I want us to turn to uh, two texts. Look with me at Hebrews 3, 16 through 19. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned? 
whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. You hear the author of Hebrews, he tells us that the root cause of the Israelites' destruction in the wilderness was their unbelief. This is actually more clear for us in Jude 5. Listen to this. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. You see, it's not individual sin that led to God's judgment here. It's unbelief. The sins that they were walking in, it just pointed to a deeper reality, their unbelief. The Israelites, they had a heart issue. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. And this is what Paul is warning the Corinthian church about in our text this morning. You in their pride, they're walking in their sin. They are presuming upon God's grace. They've fallen into what theologians call antinomianism. They think that they can do whatever they want, including sin, and that they're just gonna get away with it. That's just gonna be fine. But Paul says, no. Your actions, they reveal your hearts. Your actions reveal the unbelief that you harbor in you. So take heed lest you fall. Take heed. This is something that we need to hear this morning too. You know, we need to examine ourselves and ask, where in my life, where in my life are my actions out of step with the gospel? Where is there unbelief in my heart this morning? Maybe you're here and you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that you follow Jesus, but in your heart, you know, you know that there's idolatry there. You know that there is something else that you have placed on a throne in your life that is way more important to you than Jesus. That if that thing was threatened, you'd toss Jesus out the door in a second. Take heed. Or maybe it's that you continue, you know, in hidden, unrepentant sexual immorality. What does your relationship with your boyfriend or with your girlfriend say about what you believe in your heart? Out of the heart comes sexual immorality. Take heed. Maybe you're putting Christ to the test. You know, maybe you're continually walking in sin and you're just completely unrepentant about it. You just continue on and on and on, sinning over and over, presuming upon God's grace. You know, assuming that it doesn't really matter because he's gonna forgive you you no matter what. Maybe when you fall into sin and when you stumble, rather than crying out to God and, and seeking his forgiving love, maybe rather than feeling convicted, you just kind of, Shrug your shoulders and go like, ah, it's fine. It doesn't even matter. Take heed. You know, maybe you're just a grumbler. Everything in your life's an issue, right? Life's never good enough for you. There's always something for you to complain about that's new. You see, you never ever see 
the gracious gifts of God in your life, and you spend all of your time complaining about what could be instead of recognizing the gift of what is in your life. Take heed this morning. Hear Paul's words again. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Take heed. Search your hearts. Examine your life. Is it marked by actions that say that you believe the gospel? Is your, mark, is your life marked by humble submission to God's word, or is it marked by unbelief in your heart? Do your actions speak louder than your words and demonstrate the unbelief that you're harboring in your heart? You know, one of the uh, things that I've had to work through in my life oh, is trusting the Lord. Uh, I'm a big planner. Uh, I, I like to know what's gonna happen. I like to know where my life is going, where things are headed. And so when things aren't so clear for me, you know, when the path isn't so easy to see, I get annoyed and I get angry. And the person I get annoyed and angry with is at God. And one of the things that I've come to realize is that this mentality of mine, it, it stems from unbelief in my heart. You know, it stems from the reality that I don't trust God to provide for me, that I don't trust that God has my best interests in mind, that I don't trust him to care for me like he's promised to. And so what do I do? I grumble. I get frustrated. I complain. I, like the Israelites, fail to see the goodness of God in my life, and I end up harboring unbelief in my heart. Is your life marked by unbelief? Examine, search, pray, repent, take heed, lest you fall. But Paul, he doesn't leave us here. Paul is such a good pastor. You know, he is so uh, centered around the gospel that he cannot help but offer an encouragement. And that's our, our third point today, an encouragement. Verse 13, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Paul's not an idiot. You know, Paul knows. He knows that this warning that he's given these people, it's gonna sound harsh, and that it's gonna maybe discourage them. He knows that some of them may interpret this warning to walk away from sin, to take heed in their life as an impossible ideal that they cannot live up to. And maybe even some of us here, maybe we feel that this morning as we've been listening. You know, we might hear Paul's words and we might accept them as true, but then feel like it's pointless because we know that we can't overcome that sin in our life. We can't defeat that temptation. We can't defeat the work of the enemy in our lives. But Paul here, he reminds them that it can be defeated. The same God who warns them is the same God who is watching over them and protecting them. 
God himself does not allow the powers of darkness to overtake them. He reminds them, he reminds them that even in their temptations, God is present with them, sustaining them, and empowering them to walk away from the sin in their life. And the reason that they can walk away from this sin is because God is faithful. See that phrase in our verse this morning? God is faithful. Now, what does this mean? Well, this is actually a, a phrase that Paul, he's used before in this letter even. And when we see how he used it before, I think we begin to get a sense of what he's saying here too. So turn with me to 1 Corinthians 1, 4 through 9. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful. God, because we've been made righteous in Christ and we've actually received the Holy Spirit, he will sustain us to the end. God is faithful to work in us, to sanctify us, to grow us, to preserve us till the end when everything, everything will one day be made new. God is faithful in helping us to endure and overcome temptations. God is faithful in sustaining believing hearts in us. God is faithful to forgive us when we come to him with repentant hearts. God is faithful, church. Yes, we need to take heed in our lives. We need to watch our hearts. We need to see if there's any unbelief in us. But ultimately, when we humbly submit to God, when we trust in the saving work of his son, Jesus Christ, when we cling to Christ, looking neither to the left or to the right, then he is faithful and he is just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Christ said, God is faithful. Take heed. Yes, take heed, but no. Know that God is faithful. As I said before, in my own life, I've sometimes failed to believe, to trust in God. And this text, you know, this text this last week, it was good news for me. Because what it taught me was that ultimately, my grumbling against God, it wasn't my main issue. It taught me that if I wanna stop grumbling, I don't need you know, more self-improvement. I don't need some more willpower in my life. What I need is I need a changed heart. And that comes as I cling to Christ, as I trust, as I trust in his saving work for me, as I allow the Holy Spirit to work in my heart, to root out this unbelief, to sanctify me. 
This testament of Christ's is the only antidote for sins past, present, or future. But you must cling to him with unwavering faith. You must believe that what the words of the testament declare is granted to you freely. If you do not believe this, then never, nowhere, by no good works and by no kinds of efforts can you gain peace of conscience. For faith alone, faith alone, belief means peace of conscience and unbelief, nothing but distress. You see, God is faithful to me as I cling to Christ to work in me, to sustain me, to sanctify me, to change me, and one day to glorify me. And he's faithful to you too. Take heed this morning, but know that God is faithful.